Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. Study for your LLB while also immersing yourself in the study of politics with a focus on modern threats to democracy and human rights on the local, national and global level. Only on the LLB Law with Politics and Human Rights degree at Goldsmiths. Today I'm going to be talking with two campaigners, um, John Crilly and Jan Cunliffe. Both have extraordinary personal stories which have led them to campaign against the law of joint enterprise. And I won't tell you those stories now, I'll let them tell them in their own words. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so at www.betterhumanpodcast.com. That's www.betterhumanpodcast.com. Thanks so much for joining me, um, John Crilly and Jan Cunliffe. Um, we are going to talk today about the the challenges and successes and um, difficulties of campaigning on a particular issue um, that raises really serious and important human rights um, concerns, which is joint enterprise. And I'm going to ask you both, first of all, what led you to become um, such um, doughty campaigners on this issue? If I could start with you, Jen. Um, it, I began because of, because my son was convicted of a joint enterprise murder that the court process proved he didn't commit a murder and that he wasn't involved in a murder. So I went down the route of finding out what joint enterprise was, what it meant, and how it, 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 it could possibly happen to someone who was clearly not guilty of murder. But one of the things I kept hearing in the courtroom during the trial was the possibility of foresight. Um, and it didn't feel to me that that was the kind of evidence you should use in a, in a murder trial. And I, all the way through the trial, I, I, I truly believed that my son would be found innocent because there was nothing there that proved that he was guilty, even, even for foresight, uh, because my son at the time uh, was considered blind. So that to me said, how can someone who can't see in the first place have foresight uh, for the actions of people that he can't actually see? So um, that, was, that was the burning issue for me. And I actually believe that we were probably unique in that conviction only to find as as time went on people contacted me and I found other people and it it became quite clear that this is this was something that was happening in courtrooms up and down the country so the campaigning became a necessity not just for us as a family personally but because it was clearly happening to other people I hope you don't mind can we talk a bit more about your son's case because in many ways it's the it's the most, it's, it sounds like the most obvious example of where this overextension of liability for murder um, comes home to roost and, and, and causes injustice that, that, he, that he, he was blind and that he yeah. couldn't, he literally could not, he could not foresee. I know that's what, not what foresight means, but. He couldn't foresee and he couldn't see. I mean, yeah. let's face it, you, you can still murder someone if you're blind. I, I, I understand that. You can't, in our particular case, the victim died because of one injury, which was one blow, a single blow. And yet five people were charged with murder. Um, 
Now, five people can't have delivered that fatal blow. Um, even the pathologist, the police forensic pathologists described the victim's injuries as, as just one single unique injury. Otherwise, he would have walked home unaided and in no need of medical assistance. So it's, it, you know, it's very clear if that's what the pathologist is saying, that this victim died because of a single blow. And I thought that we will be finding out who inflicted that blow. Um, if you had five defendants, which one was it? Um, but that's not what the prosecution were after. They wanted to know who was at the scene. Uh, in fact, Jordan's, Jordan's conviction came about because I think because he couldn't place himself. He didn't know where he was, whether he'd come onto the scene afterwards or if, if he turned back and came onto the scene after, after the event. or He just didn't know. Um, and that's pretty obvious why he didn't know because he couldn't see who was there and what was happening. Um, but it, I can't understand. I really can't understand how he, how he was found guilty. Um, it doesn't make any sense. The only thing that I can make sense of is the fact that, one, he was 15 years old, so he didn't have um, the, the, the verbal ability to explain his disability um, and how to defend himself. He was defending himself against murder, not not joint enterprise or, or possible foresight. And that's, you know, 15-year-olds don't understand the law. Um, and I think it was quite cruel to do that to, to a child. Uh, I'd never heard of joint enterprise, so I couldn't help him. And our legal team were, were, were also um, very vague about what joint enterprise meant. They were, they were more afraid of it than um, wanting, to wanting to challenge any of it robustly. But I think that was due to their inexperience and knowledge as well. So it, it's, I mean, if you look, if you ask an ordinary person what joint enterprise is, they, they won't be able to explain it to you. Because, and especially 14 years ago, um, because I'd never heard of it. Yeah. And, and John, you've also got a very sort of personal connection to this law. Yeah. Um, well, I was locked up under joint enterprise in 2005. Um, I was into criminality. I'd been on drugs for since I was 18. I was 34 when I got convicted. Um, I'd only ever done six-month sentences, just petty offending was all I used to do to feed me drug habit. Uh, one day I went on a burglary with a friend of mine and a lad I didn't know very well. Um, I was supposed to just knock on the door and make sure there was no one in, which I'd done a couple of times previously. Because uh, I, I don't like the thought of burglaries, I never have. I've not got a, many many on my record. I think I've got three and two at empty houses for copper. Um, but I found out on the other burglaries, the lads I was with had hid things from me that they'd got in the house. Um, so on this one, I was going to go in, make sure I wasn't getting had over, as you say. Um, so yeah, we've got committed a burglary. We've not, I, as I say, I knocked on the door. I even shouted through the letterbox. Um, turned out, child, the victim had tinnitus, so he couldn't hear the door. Obviously, we thought there was no one in. We've gone through the door, up two flights of stairs, in the flat, and then into the living room, where we immediately became aware that there was an old fella in the flat. Um, you could see there was nothing in there, and straight away. 
this is what I'd always feared in burglaries. That's why I never done them. Um, straight away, I'm just saying we need to get out. We need to leave because I was selling drugs at the time. I had drugs in my pocket. Didn't need to be there. Um, the lad I didn't know that well was not having any of it. He was just going off like a lunatic. So I left him in the living room. I went into the bedroom where the other lad was and said, listen, we need to leave. This is madness. And he agreed. Went back into the living room. And as we did so, the co-defendant who I didn't know punched the victim only once and he dropped to his knee. Um, and I've, I've gone over, picked him up and sat him on the couch. He had a bloody nose. That was it. He didn't look like, no way he looked like he was going to die or even have suffered any kind of in, bad injury, just looked like an old bleed. Um, upon putting him on the couch, I've obviously gone, started screaming and shouting, effing and blinding at this kid. And um, I just left, I picked up the telly and said, just take the telly. I just wanted to get him out of there. I was trying to do anything. And this is what's important because it's, I'm guilty of burglary. I'm probably even guilty of robbery because I stayed for that, that time. But all the time I was there, I was pleading and trying to get the other kids out. I didn't want any part of it. So, yeah, I, I said, let's take the telly and leave. He said, don't take fucking tellies on burglaries. Um, so I just put the telly down and I left. And them two followed me out about a minute, two minutes later. Um, with absolutely nothing, a food blender or something they had. And um, obviously, yeah, I went mad at him and we split up and I never seen him again. So I got arrested. And eight days later, I think I got arrested walking up the main road and been arrested for murder. So, yeah, that was my um, offence. And obviously I've gone to court and thinking, well, I've not, I've not laid a finger on anyone. Even like Jan, uh, the prosecution pathologist, agreed advised it was just a single punch. Um, I give evidence in the dock, the other kid never. Turned out he had previous for it. Uh, the victim never died, but he'd done exactly the same. Went in someone's house, beat him up, robbed him. So the jury found him guilty of the punch. And accepted that I didn't throw the punch. And like Jan, the judge was saying, um, possible foresight a lot. Um, I was out of my depth, all this, basically saying I had I was out of my depth and that I, I wasn't responsible for the punch, but under the possible foresight, could I possibly foresee the actions of my co-defendant? Well, obviously, this is what I think is mental. It's infinite, isn't it? Possible foresight, it could be life on Mars. So if you put that to a jury, especially in my case with a drug addict in the dock, or as in most cases, gangs, um, the jury aren't going to need much convincing. So, yeah, under possible foresight, I was guilty. Found guilty, sentenced to 20 years. 20 year tariff to serve every day of it. And yeah, so that's why I, how I got involved. I think I was locked up for four or five years and then seen an ad in the paper for Jemba. Have you been convicted of murder? Did the judge use possible foresight? And I was straight on the pentagon. And been with them since day one, really. So let's talk about Jengba, Joint Enterprise Not Guilty by Association. Jan, how did it come to be set up? During my son's trial, um, as as early as the um, magistrate's court, there was a journalist in there who was making a panorama about um, youth crime. And she'd come to have a lot because obviously she thought, you know, this is another, another 
possibility to go into the panorama that she was making. And she saw me with my two boys. They were behind a, a sort of glass screen. Um, and as we were leaving, I sort of touched the screen and 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 said goodbye to to one because both of my sons were 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 charged, but only one was convicted. And I and I was sort of mouthing to to my youngest son to speak to tell. The, the blind son that I was looking at him through the screen because obviously he couldn't see me and he's raised his hand up and we've, we've sort of touched hands through the glass. Uh, now this producer for Panorama saw that and thought, this isn't the feral kids that the newspapers are writing about and that there's clearly something wrong with, with one of the defendants uh, behind that screen. Um, so she followed the case through the trial and she was absolutely horrified when Jordan was found guilty. Um, so she approached me afterwards and asked me how, why, you know, why do I think he was convicted? And it was, and it was really difficult for me to convince um, Panorama that, you know, what was wrong with the law. But after 18 months, they finally came up with a programme called Lethal Enterprise. And it really was what springboarded the campaign because... Uh, the other co-founder for January is a lady called Gloria Morrison. She was interviewed on the Panorama too. So because of that, the two of us met. Um, and the first thing we said to each other was, there's got to be a national campaign. Um, and from the back of Panorama, we was approached by someone who wanted to give us £10,000 so that we could actually launch, so that we could put that advert in Inside Time, so that we could launch the campaign at the... Labour Party conference in Liverpool and at the Conservative Party conference in Manchester. So we sort of had two little launches in two separate cities um, and, it, and it, it springboarded us as a campaign um, and, it, and it, we acquired more people because of it, because people heard about us um, and wanted to come to us and tell us their stories. And when we listen to other people's stories, they all have a common thread <laughs> Uh, we all seem to be singing from the same hymn sheet. I mean, there's no doubt about it. There might be some of the prisoners that have contacted us that, who are guilty. Um, and if they did go to appeal, you know, that would be, you know, they wouldn't get to appeal because if the facts of the case are that they are the perpetrator, I find it very difficult that they would be able to appeal. Um, but the people that we found, a, a, a lot of them are... are are very young, have, have got disabilities. Um, the, the, there are a lot of issues that come with, with many of the people that we've found have been convicted. They seem to be easy targets. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month that's just over two pounds via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable. And I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. John, did you see that advert in Inside Time? Is that how you got involved? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've just been doing me jail or trying to get me head around it for four or five years. And then one day that just popped up in Inside Times and it just gave me some hope um, that I wasn't going mad and uh, that maybe uh, it was wrong. 
and it wasn't just me being biased or criminally minded. But yeah, so I wrote straight to him, yeah. And I've been with him since day one. And, and what kind of involvement did you have to start? Well, well, in fact, what year was that when that advert went out? It would have been 2000. I think it would have been 2010. Yeah. Yeah. Because we launched in, I think it was September 2010, but we'd had responses from something like 250 people. So we released 250 red balloons with the name of everyone that wrote to us. Um, and I think John was one of them, but we, they were all launched because they were the prisoners that had come to us. But we released another 100 white ones because we thought there might be another 100 people. Um, I mean, there was more than 100 more people because to date we've got um, 1,500 people that have been in contact with us over the last 10 years. And so, John, how did you get involved and what was what what did you offer and provide to the organisation? I just initially wrote to him to... Um Telling them that, yeah, everything they've been asking in the paper about possible foresight and all that was applied to my case. And um, there's not really a lot you can do inside, just what, what they ask you to do, just writing to MPs and solicitors and stuff like that. Jan, from, from your perspective, did you find that it was a lot of families, a lot of parents coming in um, to, to get involved? We, yeah, we did. We did. We got a lot of, we, we have got a lot of families, but we've not got as many families as, as we have prisoners because it's really difficult for families. If, if it's your son or your daughter that's been convicted, um, it, 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 it completely disrupts your entire life. So uh, having time and having the energy to campaign as well is really difficult. So we have got a lot of prisoners, but we don't necessarily have a lot of, of the families on board. Um, because, I mean, we, we, we've, we've even had mums commit suicide because they found it so difficult to cope with the conviction of their loved one that they've, they've actually taken their own lives. So it's, it's, it's not a case of, you know, you get this burning injustice and you can go out there and fight because not everybody can do that. And, and that's the sad thing about it. We've got lot, all of these prisoners who want someone to help them, um, if we had every family member on board, the campaign would be absolutely massive. Um, but we, you know, they initially contact us, but they're incapable of doing, um, they're incapable of doing, they don't even understand themselves why, why, why their loved one's got a conviction. So they're sort of out, out in the wilderness. So how do you go about this task? Because you, you were facing when, when it started, well, first of all, you've got a son in prison you know, from a personal perspective, but from a legal perspective, this isn't just a new thing or, you know, just a, a government policy, this reasonable foresight um, test, which allows so many people to be cast in the net, caught in the net of joint enterprise murder. This has been around already for decades. So yeah. what, 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 how do you approach a, a, a campaign to change a law, which has been around for such a long time? I, th I think our, first, our priority was to let the public know that it existed and to tell the truth about it because we, we, we've all seen news items on TV um, and there'd be a police officer saying, you know, they're all, they're all, and, uh, they're all guilty. They got found, on con found guilty on concrete evidence, you know, that, that this was a robust trial. We found out who the killers were and we put them in prison for life. And um, when you've been to a trial and you've seen how it works, you know that that's not the truth. 
Um, so it was all about changing that narrative um, so that instead of the public listening to what the police's version or the prosecution's version on, on, a news, on a news item, which would make you believe that these five people were all gang members and brutal murderers and that they were all involved and they all deserved a life sentence, we had to change it to show that not all of these people were gang members, not all of these people were actually involved in the crime. And that, that was quite a difficult task. Um, but one of... Um, one of our sort of one of the things that did help us was the first justice select committee inquiry that we had, um, which because the MPs on that inquiry gave recommendations that the law was in fact um, overcriminalising people and therefore there could be miscarriages of justice. That was a real that was sort of vindicating us to some degree. And then we get our set got a second one, and again that vindicated us to some degree. Um, and we got meetings with the DPP who decided that they would produce guidelines so that, you know, um, young people, disabled people, innocent people wouldn't get drawn into, into a joint enterprise prosecution. Um, we didn't feel that it was enough. And, and, and I still don't feel even the CPS guidelines are enough because you can sort of we don't know whether the whether prosecutors are using them or not or um, or whether they are strong enough. We, we don't think they're strong enough, but we got that to happen. And because we made things happen, um, we got noticed and we became a, a campaign that was visible rather than just being mums sat at the kitchen table writing to prisoners and, um, and, 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 and just talking to each other. It, it, became, it became something that people were talking about rather than just us talking about it ourselves. And John, when did you get out of prison? 2018 I think yeah 2018 and 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 by that time you know where were you at in in life and and what did you want to do because you've had a pretty busy time since then haven't you um I just left Grendon Therapeutic Jail where I'd been for four years I was just finishing my law degree and I went I was in Wymock prison I just got my cat C after 13 and a half years and yeah, that's can, can you just can you just explain what that is for people who don't who don't know what what's cat C? Uh, that's your category of prison you're in. Like you get cat A prison, which is a high security, then the cat B, which is lower down from that, still a lot, lot of locks and doors, and then cat C is more open. It's just mostly billets, and you can walk about most places, so you've got a lot more freedom. And then you've got Cat D, which is the open prison. So it's just a grading of the prison systems. And and, and and so it took you a while, like it does with a lot of prisoners, to to come down the categories in, on the way towards release. Well, yeah, it's took me 13 and a half years to get one to get any categorization. Because I was Cat B to start with. And yeah, it took me 13 years to get the Cat C. And and you did it and you studied for a law degree in the while you were in prison? Yeah. Yeah, I had one essay left. I think when I got out, and and when you and when you got out, what was the next step for you? Well, the very next day, I was being interviewed by radio and stuff like that. There's been a lot of appeals before mine, uh, been knocked back with this madness of substantial injustice test, but somehow I've managed to pass it. We don't know how. This is what I'm talking about: substantial injustice test. They won't define it, so. It's just madness to me how they do this year working. Like, 
One minute they're holding their hands up that it has been wrong for 32 years, yet although they ask people to be accountable every day of the week, they've got no accountability or themselves. They're just trying to save face, and for the sake of saving face, people are doing decades in prison. It just totally blows my brains. All right, well, well let, let's let's pull back a bit here because before we talk about the substantial justice test, which is really important, Jan, do you want to talk about Jogi, the, the, the case where where we met and um, and which I was involved in as well? That, that, that is really important as well because, I mean, what's important as well is when we did these um, select committee inquiries, uh, we asked our prisoners to, to submit that what they felt and John was one of them um, and I think when the MPs were reading these letters from serving prisoners some of them very very young some of them who were, who were convicted as teenagers but they'd been there for 10 years I think that 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 played a part in, in them recognising the suffrage if you like um, now one of one of our cases was Amin Jogi and I was very close to his mum and we had a lot of contact and um, Sometimes she would get in touch with me because she didn't know what was happening with the case. And um, she mentioned the barrister, which was Felicity Gary. And she showed me this huge bundle. She took a picture of it and said, what does this mean? And I said, oh, my God, it means you're going to the Supreme Court. Um, and I could see that Felicity had got the select committee inquiries information in there as well. Uh, and 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 the name Jengba kept cropping up through through some of the paperwork. So I spoke to my colleague Gloria Morrison, and I said we got to go meet her. Got to have a meeting with Felicity Gary. So we did, and we took Simon Natus with us. And she said, "Do you want to do you want to intervene on this?" And obviously, it it the the only reason I went there and, and wanted to go there in the first place was because I wanted to ask her if we could. So when she said, "Would you like to?" Uh, it, it was a no-brainer. We had to. We had to. So it was almost like it, it was like it was meant to be, but we never knew which case it was going to be. Um, so when it came up, and it and obviously because I was good friends with Rachel, and it, it just felt so personal and so 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 real, and like it, this was always going to happen. Uh, so I was always really confident that that we get a good result from the Supreme Court, even though every other lawyer in the country that I spoke to said. Nah, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. So obviously, on that day when it when it did happen, it was it was like the whole eight year fight had come to a head, and everything we've been saying had been vindicated, and that all of a sudden we would get justice, and that that it, we were all elated. We thought that that this was the end of it. We really did. I mean, that was two thousand and sixteen. It's two thousand and twenty one. And like John says, he's the only person that has had his his conviction quashed. Yeah, and 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 that, you know, that is well. There's a, there's a lot to to talk about with that that story. But would it be fair to summarise it as the Supreme Court gave with one hand and they took away with another by, on the one hand, saying there was this wrong turn that you know happened over thirty years ago, but on the other hand it will be extremely hard for anyone currently serving a, a sentence of imprisonment for joint enterprise murder to have their conviction overturned because they would need to satisfy the 
a very high test that had been set by the Court of Appeal. So, you know, it's quite hard to, to, to fathom the meaning of all that. It's, it's, to it's totally unfair as well. It's almost separating one set of convictions from another set. Yeah, from um, the, f the, the past, from the future. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, it, it's almost like this... A wrongful conviction is is important for one set of people and their conviction must be quashed. But for another set, we don't care about you. Your conviction can stand even though the law was wrong that convicted you. Um, so so it, it's, it's, it's keeping the unfairness and keeping the injustice alive. Um, and, and, and the other thing as well, because of, because of that victory and because it was in all of the newspapers and it was all over the television, the general public believe that joint enterprise isn't isn't like that anymore. It doesn't it doesn't affect people anymore. And they also think that everyone that was convicted has had the conviction quashed. I mean, I've lost track of the amount of people that have asked me, you know, when did he get out? Thinking that my son got out in 2016, but he didn't. He only got out a year ago. Um, not only did my son have to go serve his full sentence, he went a year and a half. Uh, beyond his minimum tariff, and, and and the minimum tariff is the is just just to explain in an indeterminate sentence. There's a sort of minimum which you get for 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 murder. Sometimes there's a minimum amount of time which which is you know ten years or whatever it is. But then beyond that, it's up to the parole board whether they decide they he's safe enough to be released. So you can end up being in prison for the, for your whole life, um, which which is a whole other you know, a whole other story to tell, um, that, that, that system. But I mean, you know, I had Felicity actually on, on this podcast, um, very recently. And she was saying that in some, she still has to explain the law to the courts in a sort of quite, you know, simple way, even five and a half years later when she's involved in, um, murder appeals or sorry, murder cases that, bring up this issue um, and she finds that it's even on even for cases now there's still a lot of misunderstanding and difficulties in the courts yeah well we we thought we wouldn't be getting any more cases um but but we but since 2016 we've had hundreds um and they're all very they all feel as if that these cases have been tried using the old law um, they still sound exactly like they did before Jogi. Um, and people are still saying they have the same feelings of injustice in the same way that they did previously. So to us as a campaign, even though we're not sitting in the trials, to us it doesn't feel like there's been any change at all. Well, well, I suppose, I mean, to your credit, there, there, there has inevitably been change and a lot of cases won't be prosecuted anymore that, that would have been prosecuted originally under the old law. But mm -hmm. it can, I can understand how it can feel like that. Um and John, there's a there's a sort of unlikely twist in your story as well, which you were just showing us. We're, we're we're recording this on Zoom, so we can see, and I can just see in the corner of your couch a uh, the edge of a frame, something that's been framed. Can you tell us about what's in that frame? Um, yeah, it's um, a commendation from the police um, commissioner, of the City of London Police, and commissioner. Of the Metropolitan Police, uh, highly commended for exceptional bravery and display of civic duty during a terror attack 
at Fishmongers Hall on the 29th of November 2019. I attended a, an event of a prison education initiative. Everyone says it's a rehabilitation, but it was education. Um, it was a five-year celebration, so there was a few prisoners who had been on it over the years who had got out like I had, and uh, there was judges, MPs, solicitors, probation officers, there was loads of people there to celebrate. And yeah, um, one of the lads who'd been in prison decided to launch a terror attack and kill two people who had been helping him, helping me, helping loads of people. And yeah, I tried to stop him. That's, I mean, it's pretty extraordinary stuff, and uh, and I hope that I hope that you're proud of of that of that commendation and and what you did. Um, I mean, John, going forward, from your perspective, having having been through what you've been through, having served in prison and been convicted, and then had your appeal, um, allowed on the on this basis, although the only person who's had his appeal allowed, as far as we know, um. How do you feel about the state of the campaign? Like, what do you want to happen next? I just want Parliament to take it out of the judges' hands because obviously the judges aren't going to do it. They've had plenty of time now, so I want the MPs to do what they're supposed to do, um, follow our unwritten constitution and step in and put it on statute books, take away the substantial justice test and give everyone the right to the fair trials that they should have got in the first place. Yeah, and and and... And how do you do it? How do you convince people? And, and I, I suppose it's a question for you both, because you, you you're always up against this this you know the tabloid press who will say any um, reduction in in a, a test for a criminal appeal, even if it brings more justice as far as we're all concerned, it will put more criminals on the street and and all of that. How do you communicate that as campaigners? How do you get around? How do you get around the Daily Mail and the Sun? I don't. I don't think. I don't think we'd ever get around the Daily Mail or the Sun. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. If, if, if wings and halos, we still wouldn't get around them. Um, yeah. But the public aren't stupid. If, if we. If we. I mean, we just want to tell the truth. We don't want to scare. We're not. We don't want. We're not asking to get murderers out of prison. Um, we're asking to get innocent people out of prison. But we've drawn up. A, one of our members, Charlotte May Henry, has has drawn up. Um, a bill, a private member's bill, and she's she's worked with lawyers and academics, and it and and it's basically asking um, for the right to appeal, and it, just simply that, you know. And anybody knows that if you have an appeal and you've been caught bang to rights anyway, you're not going to win it. We're, we're asking for for that just that simple right, the right that anyone would expect to be able to have. Um, any member of the public, if, if they felt that they were a miscarriage of justice and they felt that the evidence used against them was weak or inappropriate, they would think that they're allowed to have an appeal. And that's all that we're asking for. We're asking what they would expect for themselves. It, it is really hard because they don't... The amount of cases we get that all say, I never believed it till it's happened to me, which, which is often how it goes. So it's really, really hard. But when you do talk to people and you explain it, they're just shot, they're stunned, and yeah, it's just if people knew, yeah, I don't think it'd be lasting for, for long. But yeah, people yeah. don't know that they just believe what they read in the yeah. papers, sadly. 
I mean, as far as my son's case, I've not all of my friends and family were very supportive of me, but they thought I was deluded and that everything I was saying about what had happened at the trial, I was maybe missing things out or I wasn't understanding it because people thought that what I was saying was so extreme and so unbelievable that it can't possibly be happening in, in, a, in an English court case. It yeah. can't happen. You know, British justice system's the envy of the world. This, these things don't happen. And, you know, and, and because it's so incredible and so difficult to believe, um, we kind of came across as being quite deluded. But I think as time has gone on and there's more of us come together as a, as a collective, we can't all be wrong. Um, so I think... Um, people are more open to listening to us these days uh, than they than they would have been when I first started talking about it 13 years ago. People actually believe what I'm saying now because they can compare it to other cases. Thanks so much for for sharing your experiences and the story of both of your extraordinary work, um, and and also your proposals for the future jan where can people find out more about jangba and get involved if they're interested yeah we've got we've got a twitter account so uh and we're on facebook uh but if um if you want to look at our website it's www.jointenterprise.co there's nothing after that yeah and and can people see that the draft bill there that you were talking about i think i think so we're hoping to launch maybe mid January as well so hopefully when we when we launch in January we'll, we'll get some we'll get some media attention and get some well we're wanting to launch it in the House of Lords as well so we're going to make a big deal of it because it's a really important bill and it and it it needs to be heard and it and it will affect other people as well we we believe it'll affect other people so we're not just doing this for ourselves we're do, doing it for you know for the greater good if you like yeah well I don't think anybody listening would think that either of you are doing it for you for yourselves so thanks so much and um thanks so much for all the work that you do thank you thank you for having us uh, can i just implore people listening to get involved and help in any way you can i'm out now i'm not here for the goodness of my health i'm here because this is wrong i could be off doing anything about it now but i can't when i know there's people suffering how i was it's torture it's absolute torture and it's wrong I think I think the greatest thing that anyone listening could do is send an email to their MP, tell them that they're the constituent and that they insist that they support Jengba and the Substantial Injustice Bill. So thanks very much to John Crilly and Jan Cunliffe for a really interesting and thought-provoking episode about campaigning on a legal issue which engages fundamental human rights. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law in their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. Their LLB programmes are qualifying law degrees and will prepare you for a 21st century legal practice with skills, knowledge and experience to pursue an exciting career in law. If you want to support the podcast to help make it sustainable, then please consider giving a few pounds a month, www.betterhumanpodcast.com. My name is Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human podcast. If you've enjoyed this, then please leave a review on one of your podcast media. Thanks very much. See you next time. Bye-bye.